like a, a lot of other individuals and organizations, we've have had to change our services. Uh, we've had to either build or reinforce structures around those services. We've had to consider staffing around those services, distancing around those services, and the providers externally that are available to do those services. I think some of the problems that are current, we are currently experiencing are some of the same problems that uh, were here before. They've only been magnified. Hello, and welcome to the History of Drugs in Society, where we explore the history of different substances and how we've lived alongside and interacted with them. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. For today's bonus episode, I had a chance to interview Clayton Ruley, who is the Director of Community Engagement and Volunteer Services for Prevention Point Philadelphia, which itself is a needle exchange and overall harm reduction services organization. We start the interview covering some basics of Prevention Point and Clayton's background before going over the role of community in terms of managing addiction and how COVID-19 has been affecting their services. We also spoke about some relevant policy issues in terms of access to treatment, how harm reduction might change in the coming months or years, and what leaves Clayton most hopeful when it comes to working in harm reduction. If you heard the interview I did with Professor Carolyn Acker, you may have heard of Prevention Point before. I do want to point out that there is a Prevention Point Pittsburgh and a Prevention Point Philadelphia. They're separate entities with different teams and boards of directors, but they're both needle exchanges in their respective cities. As with all recordings these days, this one was done remotely. There was some background music that made it into parts of the interview, but hopefully it's more of a soundtrack than a distraction. The interview starts after I ask Clayton to introduce himself. Uh, my name is Clayton Ruley. I'm the Director of Community Engagement and Volunteer Services at Prevention Point Philadelphia. And can you tell us a little more about what Prevention Point is and what they do? So Prevention Point is a public health uh, social service agency uh, that is based in Philadelphia. We are known for being the only legal syringe service program in the city of Philadelphia. We practice harm reduction, which is a set of practical public health strategies designed to reduce negative consequences of risky behaviors, such as drug use, uh, sex work, and in general, poverty. So we do legal syringe services. We do medical services, social services, referrals to treatment, other resources and support, uh, legal clinics, meals, shelter, uh, overdose prevention trainings and distribution of kits, among a few other things. And just wondering, what kind of background do you have that you ended up getting into this line of work? Uh, I personally come from a family of social workers, mom, dad, brother, sister-in-law, Godfather. So social work personally for me is something that's the family business, even if it's taken some folks a longer time to gravitate towards it. And uh, I've been affected by the war on drugs growing up, uh, particularly in the crack cocaine epidemic of the 80s and early 90s. And I've been affected by HIV and AIDS personally. So that was my gravitation towards the services. Also, I was an intern in graduate school uh, 2008 uh, and wanted to work with the adult population um, around HIV. And this was a suggestion. And I've been here ever since staying uh, at Prevention Point, the host of roles uh, and continuing to this day. Thank you for sharing and, and for the work that you do. Are you originally from the Philadelphia area or is that where you gravitated to for work? No, I'm from Philadelphia. I'm from uh, West Philadelphia specifically. 
So I'm a native Philadelphian, uh, saved four years, five years of college, did a five-year plan. I've been in Philadelphia consistently. And when it comes to the topic of dealing with uh, and managing addiction, how important is community? I think community is very important. We uh, know that to receive systems, uh, support, and services in communities, external community uh, and all best possibility should be involved uh, in obviously internal communities um, that we work with are very important. In many cases, uh, it can feel like you have not as much external support as you could from community. And I think that that can be very challenging uh, for folks receiving the overall services that they need to be as well as they can possibly be around safety, around access to resources that can help them either abstain or cut back on uh, their risky behaviors. Uh, If you don't have community buy-in, it's really hard to have that extension of services uh, happen as easily. It makes it uh, very much an uphill struggle. Work can still get done, but it takes a lot longer than it normally, well, it takes longer than it possibly needs to be. I mean, that's also around like stigma. Uh, It's around judgment for the people that we typically are working with and working for. And I do use that term synonymously or interchangeably. So yeah, I think community in so many ways is very important and community on different levels is very important. And you mentioned their internal versus external community. Do you mean internal, external to your specific organization or is that meant in a different context? As my prof- one of my professors says, I said yes and no. Um, so yeah, I am talking about our prevention point community um, as far as the people that we work with and work for like staff, Uh, as well as our interns, our volunteers, and the people that we serve as participants or guests. And then I'm talking about external services providers, um, and I'm talking about at-large community members, people that live in the community, people that have an opportunity to make an impact in the communities in which we serve. So yeah, both of them actually. And then in terms of the specifics of COVID-19 and the realities of the last couple of months, how has that changed things for Prevention Point overall? I think like a a lot of other individuals and organizations, we've had to change our services. Uh, We've had to either build or reinforce structures around those services. We've had to consider staffing around those services distancing around those services and the providers externally that are available to do those services. For us, it means uh, determining what services are truly essential. For instance, our syringe uh, access, our our overdose prevention services, like uh, distributing Narcan uh, and training folks on how to use Narcan or naloxone hydrochloride, snacks, meals, because we know that a lot of folks are, are you know, hungry and uh, need, you know, food for sustenance and, you know, mail, because we have a mailing service that has over 1,500 people and without mail, you cannot access public benefits. So that's an example of just some of the changes um, that we've had. And then obviously there's been restriction in services that we 
you know, typically provide because of spacing concerns, distancing concerns. So trying to have long interactions or longer typical interactions be shorter in nature, trying to have appointments for, let's say, medical care, because we still have a medication assisted recovery or treatment program that goes on. We have a HIV specific clinic, we have a PrEP clinic, and we have a hep C treatment program. Um, those interactions are using more telemedicine, tele, you know, conferencing. They're using in all best options, longer prescription terms between next appointments to reduce the amount of, uh, you know, potential for contact unnecessarily. And, you know, I mean, basically every bit of the services we provide has some new piece of dealing with COVID-19 involved in its its action. I can imagine. And when it comes to something like a needle exchange, how does something like that continue to operate in this environment? Well, it continues to operate in this environment because we know, A, that's a central service and that if folks don't have access to clean syringes, then they're going to uh, potentially share or reuse syringes, which can lead to dramatic uh, health costs, not only, um, you know, physically, um, but then potentially mentally and also financially for not only themselves, but a larger group, i.e. folks that are, you know, paying for medical care as taxpayers. I mean, it happens because it's very essential that we still do this service to save lives and save livelihoods. Um, The structure of it happened, I mean, has changed in the fact that as best as possible, you're trying to keep distancing, you're trying to have folks observe, you know, the six feet rule as best as possible. You're trying to bring people in, you're trying to bring people out. Um, You're trying to limit the amount of interaction as best as possible. And is Prevention Point involved at all in the male home uh, Narcan program that's in Pennsylvania? No, that's the PA Harm Reduction Coalition. And I know Prevention Point Pittsburgh is doing it. Also, Nextro, which is based out of New York, uh, I believe, is doing that as well. We currently uh, are uh, not doing male service Narcan. We also are continuing to give out the same amount, if not more, of the overdose reversal kits in the communities in which we're working in, uh, whether it's uh, at our main building, um, our uh, respites, or our mobile units. And I know you've already mentioned how some of the treatment activities are shifting to remote because of the social distancing that's taking place right now. Do you have any thoughts on how harm reduction might have to change in the coming months overall, especially if this kind of social distancing continues for longer periods of time? I think that harm reduction is always trying to, as best as possible, promote safety and promote education. Um, And I think harm reduction will continue to do that. I think it will continue to understand that for a group of folks, a zero-sum game Uh, is not going to work. And so we're the best strategies around that. I think in some ways, harm reduction is very much ideal for really desperate times like this, because we always typically come on a less than perfect angle when it comes to how we provide services, because we're typically not tremendously well-funded, well-liked in some backgrounds. And basically, uh, Necessity is the mother of invention in many ways. 
So I, I feel like harm reduction will continue to gravitate around uh, the concerns of the times and always work to meet people where they are in the best way that it can as a theory, uh, big picture and small picture. I think what certainly needs to continue to be adjusted is actually how non-harm reduction organizations or practices operate. Because I think they need to shift more towards some of the activities and notions that harm reduction does promote, given that NIRI circumstance is going to be ideal and perfect. Not to say it ever was, but certainly now um, we have to be more cognizant of that. Angus, can you elaborate a little bit on which type of organizations and activities you're referring to there? I mean, social services. I mean, medical services. I mean, anyone that's any organization that's dealing in public health, any organization that's working in food services. I mean, basically, if you're serving people, I think that you need to be conscious that a meet people where they are approach instead of a approach which is very rigid needs to be more implemented because for a host of reasons, including like just trying to keep people in the house, you can't have ideal circumstances where let's say you can meet with someone regularly in person, hand to hand, close contact. So you have to like have, you know, individual organizations, but also systems that support changes to how folks are administered care. And I think harm reduction has taken that in consideration a longer for a longer period of time than other institutions have or organizations that are practicing some of these services. And I think that that will continue, I mean, not just from their perspective, but also certainly in harm reduction, but for those that are like kind of off of the curve uh, in some ways, I think they're going to have to get more onto the curve to understand that there are some things that won't be accomplished in the same way that they used to be accomplished. And then when it comes to the communities that you work with, do you have any particular concerns for or or already have witnessed some increases in terms of usage in the time of social isolation? I have not heard anything anecdotally um, regarding increase in using. I certainly and we certainly have a concern about folks who do use um, using by themselves, because obviously before this, you know, we would always promote not to use by yourself. So this is where like being more creative around like, let's say like a phone check or some sort of buddy, you know, system where you're in communications, but not necessarily with someone while not ideal, uh, would come into play. And I think education that is, I think, realistic, realistic in both realms, like a COVID-19 world, but also in a harm reduction, drug using community, risky behavior taking community is going to be very important. And then do you have any specific policy issues that you wish would change sooner than later to make it easier to provide the kind of services that you think are most essential for the using population? I think some of the problems that are current, we are currently experiencing are some of the same problems that uh, were here before. They've only been magnified. You know, better access to treatment, better access to housing of all types, quarantines that think out of the box as far as folks who are actively using and how that might look in quarantine, 
uh, knowing that, you know, the risk of someone going out, for instance, and wanting to do what they normally do can't necessarily happen in the same way if we're expecting to be quarantining people. And what makes you most helpful when it comes to working in, in harm reduction and all the experience that you've had? What makes me most hopeful about harm reduction is the dedication of the people that we work with and the people that we work for. We have a very resilient bunch on all fronts, people that want to be here serving the people, uh, people that are dedicated to staying alive and doing things as safely as possible when given the resources. So that's always encouraging. The folks that we're working with are living in very challenging times. And although it's not, you know, always sunny, I think that they uh, have an optimism and a, a ability to make lemonade out of lemons a lot more than many folks would anticipate, uh, given the circumstances that they're dealing with. And I think our staff at Prevention Point uh, and the support we receive from, you know, other, you know, people that appreciate harm reduction and are practicing harm reduction says that folks will find a way to get through this because, you know, they have no choice. You know, backs are against the wall. I think people come out swinging. And is there anything in particular that makes you least hopeful? I mean, the the current response from the federal government uh, is alarming, particularly um, when we're talking about the lack of testing availability the lack of, you know, supplies as far as PPE uh, that's available to folks. I think that, you know, states are in general doing a good job of trying to disseminate what they have, but what they have is coming short. Uh, And a lot of times the federal government, I think, needs to be more responsive. And I think that they got to a late start. And I think that's really hurt us. We're very much behind when it comes to you know, access to testing. And I think testing is going to be the most important thing that we have until we can find a vaccine. Um, Because at least if you know that someone, whether they are asymptomatic or um, show symptoms, uh, if you know that they can get tested, then you have, you know, some acknowledgement uh, on what the person needs to do next. Uh, But currently it's very hard to get testing unless you are basically showing symptoms. And then at that time, the testing after it happens pretty much goes into self-quarantining unless it's really, really rough. Um, I'd like to get to the point where, you know, if folks feel any sort of question or concern that there is ready access to testing, no matter what symptoms are showing or not showing, and whether it's from, you know, a mobile unit on the street corner to primary care to you know, a tent, I think that's like the biggest concern that we have right now. And so hopefully that can improve. But right now, it's still uh, a gap in in how we do the work that we want to do. And two final quick questions to wrap up. In addition to Prevention Point, are there any other organizations that you think are doing uh, good work in the space that you'd want to highlight? Yeah, I think the city is rallying around access to food, working towards access to, you know, quarantine sites and housing. Project Home has been uh, very helpful, as they have been in the past, uh, before COVID-19. 
I think those providers that are doing essential services are doing the best they can to adapt to a ever-changing environment and pandemic. And a lot of it is based on what new things we're finding out about COVID-19, positive and negative, and the supplies that are available to folks. So I think in general, those who are on the front lines are doing the best job that they can and more you know, support coming down from federal to state, state to local um, is what we need a lot more of. And finally, if somebody wants to support Prevention Point, what would be the best way to do so? First off, I would say that we have a really good uh, social media presence right now. So we are uh, on Facebook and we're on Instagram. We're starting back up our Twitter. So if you look at Prevention Point Philadelphia on any of those platforms, you'll find us. Uh, we do have a wish list uh, via Amazon that folks have been really amazing at uh, helping to fill on a regular basis in the last five to six weeks since this went down. Um, we also have a website, which is www.pponline.org, and folks can uh, go to our donation page and donate that way as well. Um, and then I am more than willing to facilitate uh, any local donations of PPE, uh, masks, gloves, uh, and I can be reached at Clayton, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N, at pponline.org. So, um, you know, whether it's around donations or folks want to chip in around volunteering, that's something that I can help facilitate. And then there is uh, helping us with supplies, whether that's like, you know, food or it's helping us around goods, including uh, personal protective equipment. Got it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is written and produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits to Blue Dot Sessions on the music and BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sound, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at Drugs History or over email History of DIS, that's History of Drugs and Society, History of DIS at gmail.com. I'm going to add a link to the citations in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and rate on iTunes. Be well, and speak soon.